Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, started off with the customary links I liked, uh, one silly one and one genius one. So the silly one was an extraordinary video of a man catching a very large alligator with a wheelie bin and nothing else. Um, he managed it, but it was a close run thing and quite an extraordinary video. And I just love that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm sorry, I really should grow up, but it's too much fun. Um, the second one was Greta Thunberg, who I was just looking at that speech she gave where she just ridiculed the climate change negotiations and just did that repeat blah, blah, blah riff. And I think it was social media genius. And she reminds me a bit of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The pair of them are just incredibly gifted users of social media. I think we're going to hear the blah, blah, blah thing. It's going to become part of the political furniture um, over the next few years. Anyone talking about social change who gets frustrated with politicians promising and not delivering uh, is going to use that, I think. Um, I had a look at their Twitter followers. Greta Thunberg has 5 million, which is not bad. AOC has 12.5 million. So these are people who know how to use social media and do it brilliantly. Um, next post of the week was the last of this wonderful series I've been reposting uh, from researchers in the, D the DRC, the, the, the Congo, about what it's like being a researcher in what is very close to an apartheid system, which is how the research uh, supply chain operates in these countries. And this one was called In the Presence of White Skin, The Challenges of Expectations Upon Encountering White Researchers. And it's by uh, Elisei Sehusa Balolage and Esther Kadetwa Kayanga. And I'll just read out some of it because I think it was great. <clears throat> we have seen how the presence of a light-skinned researcher from the north can change the way we are welcomed in the field. It can facilitate access to the field, data and circles of respondents that often remain closed. A white person seems to embody a certain authority or power that can breach certain limits or physical and mental barriers. For example, during a research project on agricultural production in a village in what was then the DRC's Oriental province, we noticed differences between the first phase of research, which was conducted by local researchers, and the second phase, during which a mixed team of local and international researchers was in the, was in the field. During the first phase, the authorities to whom we wanted to pay our respects told us, those are students, wait, leave them there. Do you think they have brought us anything? In the presence of international researchers, the discourse changed immediately. Let them in quickly. We'll listen to what they have to say. Don't you see they're with white people? In other instances, the presence of white researchers can be an encouraging sign of security. As one of our interviewees in the Walungu region of South Kivu told us, peace is coming. Whites don't come to unsafe areas. Their presence means there won't be a war anymore. In other cases, however, the presence of a white researcher brings numerous additional complications. For local authorities, this presence can offer an opportunity to demonstrate their power and position. For the population, these researchers embody several fears. They might be thought to be intelligence agents for foreign governments or mining companies, or simply there to plunder natural resources, either of which risk creating mistrust and insecurity. White researchers are also very often associated with development workers or believed to have significant financial resources. In such contexts, researchers aren't considered just researchers, but donor representatives, thus raising expectations among respondents. One, one consequence we witnessed was, come on, we're going to listen to these people who just arrived with the whites, but if they don't bring us anything this time, we aren't going to talk to them. 
We're going to let them work alone. Why can't come here without bringing us anything? Sometimes such disappointment can lead to threats to the local researchers. On other occasions, research participants themselves are threatened during or after the data collection period. As one research assistant reported, we had come to meet with someone who lived in the village. A few days later, passing through the village, I learned that respondents had been visited by robbers who wanted the money the researchers supposedly had left them. I've actually seen that in Jamaica too, as we, we were doing some interviews in the shanty town in Jamaica. And as we left, people were circling in on the house where we'd talked to a woman. Well, this was a Save the Children project where we'd talked to a woman and we didn't know what to do, you know, how to, how to protect her. But people assumed we'd given her money and they wanted a piece. And we hadn't given her money, so she was in a real difficult situation. So, yeah, I recognise that. Next post of the week was a rant from a good friend and colleague at Oxfam, Max Lawson. Uh, I've worked with Max for donkey's years, and uh, he has a very interesting Saturday email, which is his kind of personal... Uh, it's a bit like a blog, but it's done by email. And it's got a very large subscription now because he's been building it up over the years. And it's on different themes around inequality. Uh, and if you want to subscribe, go to the blog. It's got his email and you can just sign up. This one's called Breaking the Class Ceiling. Get it? Class ceiling, not glass ceiling. Um, and uh, it was brought to my attention by Rakesh Rajani, who said, look, you've got to repost this. It's really good. So I'll read a bit of what Max says. Years ago, when I just joined Oxfam as a young policy advisor, I wrote a policy paper on the subject of World Bank poverty reduction strategy papers which at the time were plans that all developing countries had to come up with to secure funding. They were supposed to be drawn up with the participation of all sections of society. My paper said was about best practice in doing this, drawn from my work with colleagues and allies in quite a few countries. One of its conclusions was that consultation should seek to include people from all backgrounds and classes. I got the paper back from my boss's boss, the very scary head of policy and advocacy, I think that might be Justin Forsyth, but I, I haven't checked with Max, who I had barely spoken to at that point. It had red pen all over it and on the front said, good paper, but please remove all reference to the word class. Oxfam is not a Marxist organisation. And then Max continues, I fear that this reaction to class analysis is still very much the norm in aid circles. That is a terrible shame, as it impoverishes our understanding of modern inequality and what needs to be done to fix it. Class and a class analysis was such a huge thing in the past. Seeing things from a class perspective was automatic and often profound in what it revealed about society and people. I think of the incredible history written by Eric Hobsbawm and E.P. Thompson, writing from the point of view of working class people rather than the soap opera of the history of kings and queens. The contrast with today's world is dramatic. I'm guessing, but I think the reason for this amnesia is partly explained by the response to my paper from my big boss all those years ago. There was a sense that a class analysis and being a Marxist were the same thing, and that as Marxism faded and the Cold War ended, so did the idea of social class as a way of understanding society. It is also in some ways a willful amnesia, because the ruling classes would always prefer not to be singled out and identified. It's perhaps no coincidence that the demise of class analysis and a class narrative has gone hand in hand with an explosion in economic inequality and the fortunes of the super rich. But looking at people's social economic background and how that affects their life chances is not necessarily the same thing as calling for a wholesale end to capitalism. There is no need to be a Marxist 
to feel that class is incredibly important and useful. Class is about economic power, but it's about so much more, notably the way that money is transformed and consolidated through society and culture into a myriad of different ways in which people differentiate themselves. The way we speak, the way we eat, the clothes we wear, our views and understanding, the social networks, the friends, the connections, the multiplicity of ways in which we differentiate ourselves from one another in terms of our socio-economic background. How these multiple signals conspire to project a negative picture of those from the working class form a barrier to access and justify privilege. In this way, I think class is a far richer frame of analysis than terms like the rich or the poor or even elites. Is socio-economic class a uniquely British thing that is not relevant elsewhere? I don't think so. Talking to colleagues and friends from many different places over the years, I think that your socio-economic background and class is relevant in most places. And I think it makes sense that it is most relevant in countries that are the most economically unequal. And that includes almost all of the global south. The British influence is actually more insidious than that. All over the British Empire, the colonial policy was to divide and rule. First to solidify and clearly demarcate social divisions in society, and then to privilege one group over another. This was perhaps most evident in India, where British rule solidified ancient divisions into the Byzantine caste system. The association of caste with colonial rule led to a strong demand at independence to put mechanisms in place for what Thomas Piketty has called the most systematic affirmative action policy ever attempted anywhere. By the mid-2010s, more than half of the Indian population qualified for some form of affirmative action, such as reservations for places in higher education or the civil service for those from so-called lower castes. The story of India is instructive in other ways. The giant system of, of affirmative action has largely failed. This in turn is, I think, because India remains a deeply unequal country and one that has largely failed to put in place the progressive taxation and universal public services needed to benefit the vast majority of Indians and to reduce inequality. At around 1% of GDP, India spends less on health than almost any other nation in the world, a fact that was starkly apparent when Covid's Delta variant swept the country earlier this year. We also have witnessed a sharp rise in atrocities against Dalits and tribals in India, a response to some from those groups breaking free from the clutches of caste and gaining wealth, jobs and so on. Just as with gender, ethnicity, religion or race, making room for a few working class people in managerial positions is no guarantee of a more equal or fairer society on its own, particularly if those spaces are bestowed from above rather than fought for from below. But that does not mean we should not be seeking to do so. Every organisation should be collecting and publishing statistics for a start and seeking to tackle the class ceiling. Measuring the size of a problem and publishing this information is a necessary step towards challenging prejudice. I was really interested to see that this is what the accounting giant PwC are doing. In their annual report for 2021, they publish data not only on the class makeup of their staff, 15% come from a working class background compared to 56% of society as a whole, but also the class pay gap. The median pay gap between staff, including partners, from higher and lower socioeconomic classes was 12%. Our own organisations, busily fighting, busily fighting against inequality and for social justice, could learn from this. At a meeting on increasing diversity in Oxfam about 10 years ago, I asked HR, 
human resources. How many people in Oxfam come from working class backgrounds? And I was told, well, we don't collect stats on that. Yet collecting such data would only enrich our understanding of power and inequality in the workplace. It would also enrich understanding of gender and race, uh, with which class so often closely intersects, and which it is, of course, just as important to collect data and take action on. Ultimately, what is needed is not just a bit more room at the top for a few people who are not posh. It is about radically reducing the gap between the top and the bottom altogether. And what was interesting about this was it really struck a nerve. Lots of comments, lots of retweets, lots of discussion on social media. So I think Max is, is onto something here uh, and I'd be interested in what people think about it. Final post of the week was about research. I, 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 it must be because I'm at LSE as well as Oxfam, but increasingly I'm, I'm, I'm interested in different aspects of research. Um, and this one was uh, just a piece by me um, uh, after I gave a lecture. And I, every year I give a lecture on research for policy impact to the uh, LSE master's students in the public policy school. Um, and as always with LSE students, the best bit is the Q&A at the end because people are really smart and you get really good questions. So there's one particular one from Laura Denham and a similar question from Benedict Meyer. How to design research to defend the status quo rather than advocating for a particular change of law or policy or behaviours? And that was like one of those questions which brings you up short and you think, hmm, okay, I'm going to have to think about this one. And some of the ideas I came up with, I mean, uh, it's not a new, completely new thing. I've, I've, I've written in the past about how in terms of advocacy rather than research, organisations spend a lot of time on the front foot. They're trying to think, what changes do I want to bring about? When actually often, what we're often doing is trying to stop bad things happening. And I think there's been much less intellectual investment in a theory of defence, if you like, a, a, a kind of what are the tactics that stop things happening, stop bad things happening, even though that's often what we end up doing. So that got me thinking, well, what is the research equivalent for that? Um, so I looked at it in terms of ideas, incentives, institutions and implementation. On ideas, can you frame a particular threat to the status quo in such a way that it increases the number of potential opponents? For example, pro-choice yeah, on abortion issues, pro-choice activists researching the health consequences of various pieces of nasty legislation, that's what, like what's just happened in Texas, might persuade a wider public than if they focus it purely as a rights issue. Uh, or if the proposed change seems really boring, very dry and technical, try and identify the human story behind it. Who will be harmed by this and what do they think about it? And that can sort of get, get it to a much wider public, the media are interested, you know, it can start to get people thinking about that topic. That's ideas. Incentives. Focus on who is likely to lose from the change that you're opposing. Because research shows that people, um, who, uh, people tend to care much more about what's been taken away from them than what's been given to them. Um, and so those potential losers are likely, it could become very sort of vociferous allies in your effort to protect the status quo. But also think in terms of messengers. And this is a big, you know, not just the message. If, you're, if people are making a decision which you oppose, who are they scared of or who do they respect? Because if you can get that person to explain to them why this change is a bad idea, they're much more likely to listen than if you rock up with your research report or your policy paper. And finally, of course, votes matter as well. So if you can prove that this issue is going to lose them votes, then they'll, they'll listen. Um, institutions. Unpack the institution that's responsible uh, for making the shift. People tend to say governments do this, governments do that. Governments are complex systems. They have tiers, so national, local, city level. 
Um, they have different ministries. They have ministers who've got their own careers in mind. They have civil servants who uh, may, may disagree with the politicians or have different views. So you need to think who within those institutions is threatened or could be a loser. So is this decision going to take power away from one ministry and give it to another? Because if so, you can bet your bottom dollar that the ministry that is losing power is not going to like it. So work with them. Um, but also things in terms of you know, uh, budgets and tax revenues. Is this going to lose the treasury money? That, that, that's important. And then an implementation. Even if you lose, you know, it's not the end. Um, it's worth seeing what happens when this policy change or whatever this change is, is in, introduced. Do people, does it have unintended consequences? Is it hurting people? Is it raising less money than people predicted? Um, you know, uh, Brexit comes to mind for some reason. Where's that 350 million a week for the NHS? Um, so those things can be researched and highlighted and may help bring about revision or repeal of the thing you disliked. So there were two other, yeah, at least there were lots of great questions, but two others I just uh, highlighted in the blog. One from Ana Laura Sobalbarro. Is there a challenge on handling research objectively, considering your audience versus being biased by the audience or pushed by the interests of the audience and funders of a think tank or project? And from Krishna Joshi, interested to hear the role researchers can play in influencing civil servants to get good research on the agenda of their ministers. But I'm not going to give you the answers because there isn't time. You'll have to read the blog for that. OK, that's enough from me. Have a great weekend. Talk soon. Bye.